As the choir makes this, their way back to their seats, want to just welcome everybody. It is Easter Sunday. Every Sunday, we celebrate the resurrection of Christ, but as Pastor Michael prayed, we're grateful that even the secular world will recognize two holidays, the birth of Christ on Christmas and the resurrection of Christ on Easter. So we're grateful that you're here. If you're a guest, I, my name is Rocky Seto. I serve as senior pastor here at Evergreen Baptist Church of the San Gabriel Valley. And we're so glad you're here. I want to extend a warm welcome to you. And there's a good chance a friend or family member invited you to come out to service. And this is what we've asked our church members to do, is to reach out, to encourage you to come. And they do this because they love you, they care about you, and uh, we're grateful that you're here. Pastor Ugo read one of the more riveting portions of Scripture where Christ was resurrected from the grave. And this is the fact, the historical fact that all of Christianity hinges upon. Did Jesus Christ actually rise from the grave? I mean, without the resurrection, Christianity has no power. It's just sentimentalism. It's just good feelings. Therefore, believing in the resurrection is absolutely essential for the Christian faith and for you to be saved, my friends. And the sermon title for today is called Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Evidence That Demands a Verdict. And today, our hope is that if you're a Christian, that your faith will be strengthened, having a greater conviction for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if you're not a Christian yet, that you will come to the conviction that Jesus Christ did, in fact, rise from the grave, which would prove that he is God, which will prove that he is the one and only Savior of the world. So we'll be in Luke chapter 24. um, And if you have your Bibles or your phones or your apps, please turn there, please follow along. I'll be reading and preaching out of the Legacy Standard Bible. Luke 24, 36 to 53. Luke 24, 36 to 53. And we rise, so I'll ask you to rise. We do this to honor God's word. This is a treasure that we have in our hands We believe, guests and friends, that the Bible, the literal Bible that I hold in my hands right now is the very words of God. So when read, when preached properly, you're actually hearing from God of the universe. And Luke 24, 36 to 53 is our portion. God's word says this. Now while they were telling these things, he himself stood in their midst and said to them, peace to you. But being startled and frightened, they were thinking that they were seeing a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still were not believing because of their joy and were still marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he ate it. He took it and ate it before them. Now he said to them, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. 
And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day. And that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are my witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And it happened that while he was blessing them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they, after worshiping him, returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple, blessing God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the resurrection. Thank you for the proof and the evidence that you provide for us out of Luke chapter 24 today. Father, we ask that you would guard our hearts from sin and distractions. I pray whatever happened on the way here or even what's going to happen after service will be put in the back burner. Give us ears to hear, eyes to see you. Father, I pray that we will have a clear presentation, proclamation of of the Christ who gives us eternal peace. Father, I pray that you will build up your body here at Evergreen Baptist Church. Continue to strengthen our faith in you. And Father, I pray you will save the souls today. You will give the internal call and call your people forward today to become part of your family. So thank you, Father, in Jesus' name, amen. Please have a seat. Please have a seat. This portion of scripture that I read is a critical portion of scripture for us to understand what happened at the resurrection. And this happened on the first day of the week, the Bible says in John 20. And the disciples were in a locked room because they were fearful of the Jews. And they must have been talking amongst themselves, saying, did he turn the water into wine? Didn't he give sight to the blind and give hearing to the deaf? Wasn't he the one who fed the 5,000 men, not including the women and children, with five loaves and two fish? Didn't he walk on water? Peter, didn't he call you out onto the water and you walked with him on water? Didn't he calm the storm by just telling the wind and the wave to cease? We saw him cast out demons. Even the demons will listen to him. He even raised Lazarus out of the tomb. Wasn't he supposed to take over? What happened? They took him. They nailed him to the cross. And just like that, he was gone. The disciples are struggling and reeling in their faith as they're hiding in a room, a locked room, because they're scared that the Jews are coming after them and they'd be next to hang on the cross. Well, it's important for us to understand that mentality, that mind as we read and understand Luke 24, 36 to 53. All of a sudden, the locked doors couldn't hold the risen Lord back. Jesus appears all of a sudden, verse 36. The glorified version of his resurrected body is able to go through doors, is able to disappear out of, out of nowhere, and the risen Lord appeared to the disciples. And verse 37 says, they were startled and frightened. 
They must have been thinking, it sounds like him. It looks like him. But there's no way he's standing here today right now in front of us. There's no way. There's absolutely no way. It's got to be a ghost. It's got to be a ghost. We must be seeing things right now. Well, verse 38 of Luke 24 says this. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And he looks into their heart. Jesus sees everything. He knows exactly what you're thinking right now. He looks into their hearts and says, why do doubts arise in your hearts? You see, doubt is the issue right now. Faith is the issue. The disciples had faith, but they needed more faith. So even if you're a Christian today, sitting in the, in the pews today, in the, in the seats, I know you have some faith, but perhaps you're saying, I believe, help my unbelief. I believe, but there's a limit to my belief. And certainly if you're a non-Christian, our hope is that you would have a genuine belief in the Lord Jesus Christ for the salvation of your souls so that you will leave as forgiven men and women today and join the family of God. And so the Lord graciously meets the disciples where they're at and gives them evidence which demands a verdict. Okay, and this is what the Lord is doing today. And just like in a courtroom, evidence is pre presented, and the three pieces of evidence that he gives is this. Number one, the physical wounds. He shows them the physical wounds. Number two, he gives them the prophetic word, the word of God. Number three, the powerful witness is presented. Okay, so we'll go over these three points throughout the sermon. I give you that customarily just so we could follow along a little bit easier. Evidence that demands a verdict. Exhibit A, the physical wounds. In a court of law, empirical evidence is critical. What is empirical evidence? It's observable pieces of, of evidence. You find the body. You find the wound, um, the weapon. You see the pictures. You see a video recording or listen to an audio recording. DNA samples, etc., etc. These Examples of evidence are the most compelling pieces of ed evidence in the court of law. So, and this is what Jesus does. Jesus pre presents empirical evidence. In 1 John 1, 1, John wrote, what we have heard, what we have seen, what we have touched concerning the word of life, concerning Jesus Christ. The disciples were given empirical evidence. And Jesus, knowing their struggle, meets them exactly where they're at, and shows him his physical wounds. He shows him his hands and his feet. Turn with me to verse 39. See my hands and my feet. That it is I myself. John 20 says that his hands had, a, had the nail piercings, nail imprints. His side where he was pierced had the wound. Touch me, he says. Touch me, empirical evidence. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he has said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. Empirical evidence. They hear his voice. They see his hands and feet. They touch him and see that it is Jesus Christ himself risen from the grave. They see and they believe. John 20, 27, 20, verse chapter 20, 27 to 28, Thomas touches his hands in his side and he says, my Lord and my God. The physical wounds that Jesus presents here 
testifies that Jesus himself died on the cross, that it was Jesus himself who was alive in the flesh, not a ghost, not a spirit of Jesus, but Jesus Christ himself. Talking to my Muslim friends, and I love my Muslim friends. Being in my old world of coaching, I had the opportunity to meet a lot of different people. And we've had a lot of great conversations about Jesus Christ. My Muslim friend would say, Rocky, what our iman or our teacher teaches us is that Jesus didn't really die on the cross. It was Judas disguised as Jesus Christ who died on the cross. Well, clearly right here with that type of evidence, this isn't Judas. The Judas is the one who betrayed Jesus. This is Jesus Christ with the wounds in his hands, in his feet, and even have his pierced side. And the disciples able to say, this is the Lord. This is the Lord. There are no conspiracy theories here. In Acts 1.3, he says that Jesus appeared on the earth for 40 days, for over 40 days. With all this in mind, keep all this in mind, the disciples were like, no way. The, verse 41 says, they're, they're still unbelieving because of their joy and their marvel. This is no way. They're dumbfounded. This is too good to be true. It's, it's got to be a ghost. We must be seeing something. And Jesus graciously says this, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, he says, you know. Maybe fried fish might have gone over better, but they gave him broiled fish. And he took it and ate it before them. What does he say? He basically tells them, ghosts don't eat. I can eat just like I did with you many times for over the past three years. I'm eating fish, which I've done with you for many times. This, I am the risen Lord. Guess, friends, in a court of law, this type of evidence will tell the judge, case closed. It's, it's, it's a slam dunk. We already know the, the verdict of this one. There's so much evidence here. This is overwhelming evidence in the court of law that Christ himself will resurrect and show himself. You have no choice but to be a believer. And this is written for your benefit. 1 Corinthians 15 would also say that he appeared to all the disciples and into other disciples, and into his own brother, James. And, it's, and the, 1 Corinthians 15 would say he even appeared to over 500 people at once. A lot of people had this physical evidence. A lot of people were able to see, touch, and hear the risen Lord. Christians, brothers and sisters, I, I just, the more I serve as a pastor, the more I realize there's certain doctrines that are kind of hazy to even Christians who've been a Christian a long time. We need to learn more about what the risen Lord is like. I mean, what is he like today? If I, if I were to ask you right now over a cup of coffee, what is he like today? Did he still have a human body? What would you say? Does he eat food? Clearly right here he eats food. What is the supper, marriage supper of the Lamb going to be like in heaven? Are we just going to be pretending to eat or are we actually going to be eating? Can we hear, see, and touch him in heaven? Will we have to give him a big hug? What, do you, what would you say? When he went back to heaven, would you say he, he, he rid himself of his human nature? To answer these questions, yes, he has a human body. And to answer your question, this was an eternal commitment by the Lord to take on human's flesh. He eternally 
God and man, truly God and truly man, fully God and fully man, some would say, for eternity. Yes, we were able to touch him. Yes, we were able to hug him. Yes, we were able to talk to him. Yes, we were able to eat with him. I don't know what type of food it's going to be, but it's going to be good. We're going to be able to eat with him. I mean, think about this. When we actually understand these concrete truths, it puts skin on our faith. This is not some kind of theoretical Jesus that we believe that rose from the grave. We're going to be able to touch him someday, look into his eyes someday. Although he's omnipresent because he's God, he's going to be before us somehow. I don't know how that works, but he's God. But you, Christian, will be able to sit with him and talk to him as a friend. Similar to how Moses saw faced God and talked to him as a friend, we'll be able to speak to God as our friend and our Savior. Think about that. The risen Lord not only proves that he is the risen Lord, but he gives us a picture of what he's like in heaven and when he comes back someday. Evidence that demands a verdict. Let's go to exhibit B, the prophetic word. In the courtroom, written documentation is critical. If we could find documents that talk about a premeditated plan or even to present some kind of a motive, that just takes the case to another level. The resurrection does not only rely upon the experience of the disciples. Empirical evidence is great. I mean, it's overwhelming in itself. However, we have written evidence. As Pastor Jeremy talked about earlier here, we have official documentation, the prophetic word. Exhibit B, the prophetic word. And the prophetic word is even greater evidence, the Bible says. 2 Peter 1.19, one of the disciples writes that the more sure word is the prophetic word, meaning whatever's been documented for us, it's more sure because you're not relying on somebody's eyewitness account. They could be wrong, they could be hallucinating, they could be lying, but the written word, particularly if it's written beforehand, to predict what would happen hundreds, thousands of years earlier, that word is more sure. What is a prophetic word? What is the prophetic word? The prophetic word in, in, in simple terms is God's word. God's word. What he has spoken and written, had written down in the Bible. And this is documentation. This is documented words from heaven that have been recorded before the time of Christ. Talking about the Bible, the Old Testament is what the, uh, the disciples had at the time. And this proves that this salvation plan was premeditated. The plan to save mankind from our sins was predetermined from eternity past. This isn't something that just happened on a whim. This was something that God had planned from the very beginning to save his people. And I'm gonna demonstrate through Luke 24 that this is the case. Let's turn to verse 44 here of Luke 24. The prophetic word. Now he said to them, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. What is the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms? This is a summary of the Old Testament. The Old Testament is the word of God from Genesis to Malachi that existed before Jesus walked the earth. Now we have the New Testament, Matthew to Revelation. 
that clearly explains who Jesus is. But the Old Testament pointed towards the coming of Jesus Christ someday to save his people. God's word has a predictive element in it. And this is called prophecy. And the prophecies concerning Christ must be fulfilled, Jesus says. Must be fulfilled. Jesus meets these predictions. Prophecies are like predictions in some ways. Some prophecies are like that. According to Josh McDowell, this is where we uh, borrowed the uh, title for our sermon, sermon uh, title, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. He wrote a book called Evidence That Demands a Verdict. He's a Christian apologist. And he says this, one reason that the Old Testament prophecy is so important to Christians is that over 300, over 300, over 300 predictions like the thread of a tapestry established the messianic credentials of Jesus. Josh McDowell says the Old Testament contains over 300 prophecies of Jesus Christ which prove that he is the Messiah, he is the Savior of the world. In other words, the Lord Jesus Christ is the golden thread that goes through the entire Bible. He is the golden thread. If you miss him, you miss the Bible, all right? Now let me just take the time to thread the needle a little bit. Don't worry about writing down these Bible verses. It's in your app. I want you to look at it on your own when you get home or throughout this week because it's super edifying going through on your own. But let me thread the needle for us, okay, church? Jesus Christ is that golden thread. And I hold that golden uh, thread. I'm going to thread the needle at the garden in Genesis 3.15 when sin infected the human race and, and the human race was destined for destruction. God says that the seed of the woman, Eve, will crush the head of the serpent. Genesis 3.15. God had a plan from the very beginning. And then Isaiah 7 says that this seed will be born of a virgin. And then Isaiah 9 says this, this child that will be born of a virgin will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Not only will this child be born of a virgin, this child will be truly God and truly man, the God-man, the one and only. And then Genesis 12, 2 says this, that this child born of a virgin, the God-man, will be born out of the seed of Abraham. He will be an Israelite. He will be of Jewish descent. And not only that, he'll come out of a royal family, the royal line of King David. 2 Samuel 7 says that King David's line will have this child born of a virgin. And in Isaiah 53, in the book of the prophets, it says that Jesus Christ will atone for sinners, meaning it says that he will be pierced for our transgressions. He will be crushed for our iniquities. All of our sin and our guilt will be put upon him. And then in Psalm 22, let me thread this needle even more. It tells us how he would die. The crucifixion. Psalm 22 says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Psalm 22:16 says this, they have pierced my hands and my feet. The psalm writer's writing about something that didn't even exist at the time, the, 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 the invention of crucifixion. Do you see the trend here? This is so clear as we study the scriptures. The Bible says he would die. He 
Isaiah 53 says that he will be in the tomb of a rich man, Joseph of Arimathea. But Psalm 16 says that he will rise from the dead. He says, I will not allow my holy one to undergo decay or corruption, meaning the body of Christ will not decay like dead bodies do. Psalm 68 says he will ascend back into heaven, which he does according to Luke 24. And then Zechariah 14 says this, Jesus Christ will return and his feet will touch the Mount of Olives, which is right outside of Israel, and the mountain will be split in two and then he'll establish his eternal reign. Zechariah 14. So that is the golden thread as I threaded these portions of scripture. This is what Jesus says, the prophecies of my, that are written about me must be fulfilled. And he fits all those categories. This was a premeditated salvation plan by God himself to save us. Christians, brothers and sisters, the entire Bible finds its fulfillment in Christ, right? We have to understand this. As we read the scriptures, what am I learning about God? What am I learning about Jesus Christ? He is the dominant theme of the entire book. All 66 books point to Jesus Christ. I mean, open the Bible anywhere and Jesus will bleed out of the pages. He's there someplace. I mean, the Old Testament talks about his coming. It points to Christ's coming. The New Testament tells us about Christ. The Gospels in the New Testament are about the life of Christ. Acts is about the preaching of Christ. The letters or the epistles are the explanation of Christ. And Revelation talks about the return of Christ. It's all about Christ. That golden thread we cannot miss And the more you know Jesus, the more you'll know the Bible. And the more you know the Bible, the more you'll know Jesus. It works both ways. He is the living word. And this is my encouragement, brothers and sisters. We have this treasure. We stand up every Lord's Day to read the scriptures. Do we take time to understand the scriptures so that we will know Jesus Christ more? You couldn't have a faith. I believe you could have a faith because if you simply understand the gospel message, but there will always be doubts in your head. You don't know the Lord very well. You're thinking, mm, I just hope this works out. Could be a genuine faith, but there'll be doubts. The more you commit to studying the scriptures, the more you'll understand and trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Verse 45 of Luke 24 says this, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. He opened their minds to understand the scriptures. He took the blinders off. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. When the Spirit of God illuminates our mind, we understand, and we turn from darkness into light. This is what happened to the disciples, to understand the Word of God. Guess, friends, has he opened your eyes? Has he opened your mind to understand that Jesus Christ is the risen Lord? Has he opened your mind to understand this Bible is no ordinary book? This is the holy word of God, that this is the ultimate source of truth. Has he opened your mind to know that the scriptures, the Bible, all 66 books point to Jesus as Lord and Savior, the risen Lord? Has he opened your mind to do this? This is the key here. This is what we've been praying for, that I'm giving you the external call right now. I'm telling you about Jesus and how one could be saved. But we've been praying that God will illumine your hearts and give you the internal call so that you would repent and believe that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. We've got one more piece of evidence 
One more piece of evidence to go to. Evidence that demands a verdict. Exhibit A, the physical wounds of Jesus Christ. Exhibit B, the prophetic word. Prophetic word. Exhibit C, the powerful witness. The powerful witness. The witness stand is critical. The case could turn one way or the other depending on, on the witness stand. Therefore, the attorney who's in charge of appointing the witness needs to make sure this is a credible witness. They need to make sure that this witness has heard, seen, or touched what they're about to talk about. So the attorney will handpick his witnesses to take the stand. Verse 46 of Luke 24 says this, And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, the prophetic word, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. And look what verse 48 says. You, talking to the disciples, now talking to all of us Christians today, you are witnesses of these things. This is Luke's version of the Great Commission to go and tell the world. Go and tell as many people. Invite your friends to church so they hear more about Jesus Christ, the risen Lord. Go talk to your coworkers about Jesus Christ. Go talk to your teammates in your sports leagues about Jesus Christ. Invite your friends because you love them. Jesus says to the disciples and all of you, you are my witnesses. I'm calling you to take the witness stand. Right? That's all of us. Not just me, not the professional Christian, right? That's all of us. All of us are called to take the witness stand. Brothers and sisters, maybe you're thinking, well, I don't have the gift of evangelism. Maybe I'm, I'm, I'm shy. Maybe I just don't know enough about the Bible. You may be fearful to take the witness stand. Whatever witness stand that God's given you, perhaps at work, it's a fearful thing. Perhaps on social media, it's a fearful thing. Perhaps with family members, they're hostile, and the fact that they came today is a miracle in itself. They're, it's a fearful thing to talk to them about Christ. Maybe you're overly concerned about what people think of you. What if they reject what I have to say? What if this hurts my relationships? What if this hurts me at work? It could. It could. It could. Should I invite my friend to church today? Friend, if you've been invited by someone from our church to attend, know that sometimes it's a difficult thing to do and they do this because they love you. I just want you to know that. I'll speak for them. They do it because they're motivated out of love for you. That's why they want you here. Perhaps you're a child, a grown-up child, a grown-up son or daughter, and your parents want you to come to service today because they love you. Maybe your coworker invited you because they love you. Your neighbor, because they love you, they care. Because they know when they invite you to every Baptist church in San Gabriel Valley, you're going to hear about Jesus Christ, right? And they're taking advantage of the Easter holiday. Because it's, it's, it's not popular to talk about Jesus Christ today. It's not. The day and age has changed, shifted drastically over the last couple years, particularly. But this final portion, Christian, brothers, sisters, is going to encourage you. Because keep in mind, the disciples, the mighty disciples, those who take on the work of Christ after he ascends back into heaven, were fearful. 
<laughs> they were fearful. They were absolutely terrified as they stood in the locked room. Well, let's read verse 49. Verse 48 says, You are my witnesses of these things. Verse 49, and behold, I know you're scared. I know you're nervous. I know you're worried about what happened to me is going to happen to you. Don't worry, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you. Acts 1.8, similar portion that Luke authored says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem, in all Judea, in Samaria, even to the ends of the earth. This theme of the Spirit of God, God coming upon us, is what gives us the power to be a powerful witness. Verse 49 goes on to say, but, hold on now, before you guys get fired up and rush out into the streets, hold on now, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Don't go yet. You're not ready yet. You don't have the power yet. Hold on, disciples. I know you're kind of getting urged. I'm, I'm, I'm urging you on to get out there. Hold on now. And look what happens next. Verse 50, and he led them out as far as Bethany and lifting up his hands, he blessed them, he blesses them, he loves us, he loves the disciples. Jesus Christ loves you, disciples. And it happened that while he was blessing them, what happened? He parted from them and was carried up into heaven. Jesus Christ leaves. What would you be thinking in that moment? We just lost you three days ago. Now you're back and now you're leaving 40 days later. How did they respond? Did they respond in fear again? Were they saying, he left us again? No. No, not this time. They were different. Verse 52 says, and they were, after worshiping him, returned to Jerusalem with great joy, not with sorrow, but with great joy, with great excitement. And look what happens in verse 53. This is a changed life, friends. This is evidence of a powerful witness. And we're continually in the temple blessing God. 50 days later, after Jesus ascends, in book of Acts, chapter two, it says that the Spirit of God, Pentecost came, and the Spirit of God came upon all the disciples. And they take their witness stand into the temple. What does that mean? What does that mean? This is not talking about Jesus in a dark room, in a corner, in an obscure place. The temple is the hornet's nest for them. This is the capital of trouble. This is the epicenter of danger, opposition. This is saying, I, will, I have a death wish right now. I'm going into the middle of, uh, of, the, of enemy territory. I'm going to proclaim Jesus Christ. They were blessing God. They're telling everyone what God has done for sinners. And then the powerful witness came. And I'm going to borrow Acts 2. Acts, if you want to follow along, is two books to the right of Luke. Acts chapter 2, verse 22. What did this powerful witness look like? Peter gets up. He's the leader of the disciples. And he says this in Acts 2, 22. Men of Israel. Yes, I'm talking to you Jews. Just to make it clear, listen to these words. Listen up. 
Jesus the Nazarene, just in case you missed it, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God did through him in your midst, meaning he is the miracle worker. He is the one that raised the dead to life. He is the one that healed the lepers. He is the one that cast out the demons, the ones that you saw. Just so we're not unclear who we're talking about, Peter's making it very clear. Just as you yourselves know, this man, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus Christ, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, which we learned through the Old Testament, that the death and resurrection of Christ was a predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God from eternity past, you nailed to a cross by the hands of lawless, godless men and put him to death. There's some boldness there. <laughs> There's some power there. And keep in mind, Peter is the one who was very bashful to proclaim Christ to a little slave girl in the dark. Now he's there at the Temple Mount proclaiming Christ. But what does he say? But God, but God, raising him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible, impossible for him to be held in its power. What are we learning here, brothers and sisters, about this powerful witness? Number one, Jesus says, calls us onto the witness stand. He does not call us into the jury box. He doesn't call us to be the judge. We're not judging people. We're not condemning people necessarily based upon how they think, how they look, but, but we will tell them the truth that they are sinners and God is the judge who destines them to judgment if they don't repent. We're not called to be the spectators where we're in the courtroom just watching as the world goes by. We're just watching the world perish. Nor are we called to be the prosecuting attorney. We're simply called to the witness stand. That's it. And what do we learn from Peter? You know what he does? He simply tells them the good news, the gospel. Brothers and sisters, witness by just simply telling the good news. The good news. That Jesus died on the cross for sinners. He was the atonement or the payment because sinners are going to be judged in eternal hell forever. But Jesus Christ paid the price to get you out of prison there eternal prison. And what else did he say? Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive. He defeated sin and death. And when, he, when, when Peter was talking to him about this, oh, I'll just read it for you. Therefore, let all, verse 36 of Acts 2, therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And look what happens next, verse 37. Now when they heard this, they are pierced to the heart, pricked to the heart, and said to Peter, they stopped Peter in mid-sermon, as if someone were to get up right now and say, Pastor, how can I be saved? What should we do to be saved? They asked him, stop preaching, we heard enough. How can I be saved? Peter says, repent for the forgiveness of your sins. 
repent, turn away from your sins, turn away from living for this world, turn away for living for yourself and turn to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Trust that he died for your sins. He paid the price for your sins, friend. Trust that he did that. And you will be forgiven of your sins, the Bible says. What you have done wrong, every single one of us, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, has sinned. I've sinned. I still sin. I still struggle with sin. The bad that we've thought or said or done, it's not going to be removed as if you never did it. But what's going to be removed is the guilt, the debt they owed from being wrong. Instead of being guilty, the sentence would be innocent, justified. Just if I have lived Jesus' perfect, holy, righteous life, that's what Christianity is about. It's not about us. It's about what Christ has done. Number two, Christians, what can we do? Share the gospel, number one, because that's where the power is. That's the power that saves first the Jew and then the Gentile. Number two, tell them what God has done for you, Christians. Give them your testimony. Give them your testimony. Peter says, before he even starts this sermon, he goes, we're not drunk, but the Spirit of God has come upon us, and we boldly proclaim Christ before you. We're changed men and women. That's what Peter says. He gives them his testimony. We're not drunk. We're speaking according to the power of God. Brothers and sisters, tell them when you heard about the medical report how he met you and gave you peace that surpasses all understanding. Tell people about that. Brothers and sisters, tell them when you buried a parent or a spouse that he was there to hold on to you and comfort you. Tell them about that. Brothers and sisters, tell them when you are tangled in the greatest sin of your life how Jesus met you with mercy and grace and love with open arms. Tell them about that. Tell them how you were once an unfaithful man and woman, but now you desire to be faithful to him. You're unfaithful to God and to your own family, but now you change your ways and you want to be faithful to him. Tell them about that. Tell them about how he calmed the storm of anger and lust in your heart. Now you got peace and purity of mind. Tell them about that. Tell them about that. He's the Prince of Peace. Tell them about the Prince of Peace. Tell them how Sister, how you had a rebellious heart. You rebelled against your husband. You rebelled against God. But now you're submitted to God. You're submitted to your family now. Tell them about that. Brothers, I know what this is like. Tell them how you used to live for the world. The money, the fame, the attention, the applause of men. But now that seems like trash. Now you want to live for God. Tell them about that. People can relate to these things. It's not only Christians who go under trials. Non-believers are constantly under trial. The difference is they have no hope. The difference is they have no hope. You have hope. Brothers and sisters, you can take the witness stand. Believe what the word of God says. You have been given power. You've been clothed with power on high. Don't believe your feelings. Believe the truth. You can take the witness stand. Sorry, guess, if, if, if I sound like a coach, you know, but... It's kind of how it's built. <laughs> right. You can't be a powerful witness because you're armed with the gospel message. You're equipped with the gospel message. That is the power unto salvation. And you're clothed with power on high. 
tell him how you tasted and seen that he is good, how you drank the living water and he satisfied you like no other. He's better than my spouse. He's better than my children. He satisfies me more than my work and my job, my money, my vacations, my home, all of that. He's better than anything else. Tell him these things. In conclusion, this powerful witness by Peter through the power of the Holy Spirit converted 3,000 souls, roughly 3,000 souls. They were pierced to the heart. And they asked him, what should we do? And Peter says, repent for the forgiveness of your sins. Friend, has God pierced your heart today? You've heard this old story over and over, but has God awaken your dead soul today and you realize that yes, you're a sinner and that forgiveness is there for me. Do you realize that for the first time today? The evidence certainly demands a verdict. You cannot stay in the middle and say, I'm indifferent. Indifference means you're not, you say no to the resurrection. It's either you believe or you don't believe in the resurrection. And there's plenty of evidence that would say that he is the risen Lord. The physical wounds, the prophetic word, the powerful witness that you see in the scriptures, but also the one who invited you. And let me lower your expectations, friends. No Christian is perfect, okay? My wife, my kids could tell you that. No Christian is perfect. Your friend, your relative is not perfect, but they genuinely want to care for you. What is your verdict about the resurrection of Jesus Christ? And I'll say this much. God is not on trial today. Jesus Christ is not on trial today. He's not sitting on the, in, on the defense table right now. It's you who's on the trial right now. You are in trial. You're sitting at the defense table, and Jesus Christ is, wants to advocate for you right now. Your final verdict about the resurrection of Christ, you may not believe it today, but your final verdict upon death will indicate the eternal verdict that God has rendered on your life. In other words, if you believe that Jesus is resurrected and he's the Lord and Savior of your life, you will be declared innocent. You're free to go. Come into my family. If you reject Christ as the risen Lord, you will be found guilty and sentenced to eternal hell. Apart from God, eternal wrath will be poured upon your life for eternity. Give your life to Christ today. Tomorrow's guaranteed to nobody. Tomorrow's guaranteed to nobody. Jesus says, turn to me and be saved. Salvation is available for you, friend. Jesus Christ says, to all the ends of the earth, no matter what tribe, tongue, nation, wherever you're from, God is opening the gates of heaven for you through the preaching of the word. Has he given you the internal call right now? Are you pierced? Are you pricked to the heart right now? Do you finally realize that Jesus is the greatest treasure of all? Jesus says, for I am God and there is no other. We serve a great savior, don't we church? I mean, who else would you rather be under? Who else would you rather be under? Jesus Christ, Christ is the greatest treasure of all. Let's pray. Father, thank you for loving the world that you gave your only begotten son that was read earlier. 
And thank you that you promise that whoever believes in you shall not perish but have eternal life. Thank you, Father, that you did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world may be saved. Thank you, Father. But Lord, thank you for making it very clear that how you make it clear to us through the scriptures that he who believes in Christ is not judged, but he who does not believe has already been judged because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God, Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, we believe that you are alive and you are praying for the church right now. So we thank you for this opportunity to speak on and preach on Luke 24. Thank you for this evidence that you give us. Lord, will you be gracious to light up lost souls right now? We illumine their minds. Will you open their minds to understand that the scriptures is talking about Jesus Christ, the Savior of the, of the world? Give them eyes to see, ears to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. Save them from their lostness, Lord, today. I pray, Lord, that they will consider their eternal standing before you today, right now, this day. Upon death, will they be in heaven or in hell? I pray that they would seriously consider this fact. Father, I also pray for the dear brothers and sisters. We see your pattern, Lord Jesus, where you blessed the disciples before you left. I pray you bless every brother, every sister here today. Build up our faith in your son more. Give us greater confidence in the risen Lord. Meet us where we doubt. And I pray somehow this portion of scripture has fortified our faith in your son, Jesus Christ. May we leave joyful, full of joy, and bless the God of the universe who saved us through his son in all the days of our lives. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.